This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. One of the many things I love about doing this job is that we get to learn things on this show. And we're going to do that right now because we're going to talk about ice this morning. Uh, not just because it's winter out there. Most of us think, you know, ice is ice. But there are researchers who devote their time to studying it. And now some of those researchers have actually discovered a new type of ice. And if, like me, you wonder, well, how does that work? How can there be new ice? Well, it's a good thing we have our next guest on the show, right? Dr. Andrea Sella is with us, a professor of chemistry at the University College of London and the co-author of Medium Density Amorphous Ice. Dr. Sella, thank you for being here. Good morning. It's a real pleasure. Can you tell us how many types of ice are there? Well, it's really interesting. Uh, in fact, counting them can be sometimes quite tricky. Um, but first of all, we have to realize that um, ordinary ice, the ice that we love to throw at our friends, uh, that we love to put in our drinks, ski on, and so on, is uh, a crystalline structure. In other words, the, the water molecules within it are arranged in a very, very regular way. And it turns out that if you take that ice and you cool it and you squeeze it, you compress it, and so on, over the years, uh, 19 other kinds of crystalline ice with a regular arrangement of, uh, of, of water molecules have been found. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely astonishing. And it just shows us that, um, you know, these materials that we sometimes take for granted can be unbelievably surprising. Now, in addition to these crystalline forms, there are also what are called amorphous forms. In other words, ones in which there is no regular arrangement, in which the, the, the atoms and molecules are arranged kind of higgledy-piggledy through, uh, through the structure. And the uh, result is that they're actually really quite interesting, but more, more difficult to study. Okay, so what does it mean then? Like, what does a finding that there is a new type of ice mean? Okay, so we did something... Uh, which, which sounds in a way kind of a bit silly. It was a Friday afternoon kind of idea. And we were wondering whether we could take regular ice and we could transform it into one of these, I mean, essentially smash it into what you would call an amorphous form. And so what we did was we put it into what's called a ball mill. And that is a little sort of uh, steel capsule with some ball bearings in it. And at extremely low temperature, we shook it for minutes, hours, days. And when you do that, it's like, you know, a child taking a hammer to, uh, you know, a, a, a material. It just smashed down, first of all, into ever smaller bits. But we soon realized that we were losing that nice crystalline arrangement. In fact, it was our, 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 our postdoc, the principal researcher, a guy called uh, Alex Rosa-Finkson, who spotted that not only was the, the, the structure being lost. But the other really surprising thing 
was that density was changing. Now, you know, why does density matter? Everyone knows that if you take ice and you drop it into water, the ice floats. And it turns out that that is completely unique. There is no other material in the universe that does that, that floats on, it, on its liquid. And as we milled our ice and sort of destroyed it effectively, the density increased until it exactly matched that of liquid water. And so what we have here is a kind of ice that won't sink, it won't float, a bit like a fish. It's kind of buoyant. It just sort of sit. It, it, it should sit at the same level if you were to put it in water. And so what we think we might have, and, and you know, it's not fully confirmed, but our surmise is that what we've got is a kind of ice which looks at a, at a molecular level exactly like liquid water. Liquid water, all the molecules are kind of random. Well, we've got the same thing in this material. Okay, what can you do with that then? Well, not an awful lot if you're thinking about, you know, setting up a company and making a profit. <laughs> but, you know, water is, is, is you know, and you know, people always kind of put things in monetary terms. But if you think about it in terms of the fact that water is one of the most important molecules in the universe, you know, it's really the solvent for life then actually understanding the relationship between, you know, the, the, how the, the liquid works and how its solid forms works is going to help us to gain more understanding of its role in biology and so on. But the other thing which is kind of interesting is that we know that out in, on the outer planets of, uh, of, of, the, of the solar system, around those massive ones like uh, Jupiter, Saturn, uh, Uranus, and so on, there are moons that are covered in various kinds of ice, and some of them have these enormous glaciers of water ice. In other words, H2O frozen. Now, because these huge glaciers are actually sitting on a, on a moon that is very close to a massive planet like Jupiter, you actually get tides in the solid material, not just in water you'll actually get pushes and pulls of these, these ice sheets. And what that, that ends up, I mean, we suspect that at the edges, in the cracks, underneath, wherever this ice makes contact, either with other ice or with rocks, we should be able to get the same grinding that we did in our ball mill. And therefore, perhaps this, and I know it's not the sexiest title name in the world, <laughs> it's MBA, medium density amorphous ice, but it's pretty boring. We should have come up with something better. Um, but, but, but maybe this actually exists on those planets and, we'll, and on, the, on those moons and will actually help us to understand the movement of these great ice sheets, which remains very much a mystery. Okay, that's fascinating then, the way you just described it. So this will help you understand how ice forms in space, essentially. Well, we know quite a lot about how ice forms in space. One of the interesting things is that um, it's, uh, you know, space is much colder um, than any planet that we have around. And the, the ice, for example, you know, we, we've had this comet, which has just gone, which is just passing near the Earth. You can see it almost with the naked eye in, in the night. Um, we, we know that there is ice there. And that ice is also amorphous, but it's slightly different from ours. It's got even lower density than ours is. Um, and so... You know, what we're really talking about is understanding 
potentially how existing ice sheets on on moon might actually uh, sort of behave given these huge motions and all of this grinding. It is so interesting. Dr. Sella, thank you for explaining it to us this morning. My pleasure. My pleasure. Anytime you need a chemist, get in touch. This is Mornings with Simi. New poll out this morning from Ipsos Reid shows that support for private delivery of publicly funded health services is very high right now. And a whole lot of Canadians also believe that more government funding needs to be directed towards health care. Seems fitting that the premiers and the prime minister then are going to be meeting in Ottawa to talk about this. But first, let's break down the poll with the help of Global News Toronto reporter Catherine Ward, who joins us now. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning. Okay, so these poll numbers are pretty high. Break them down for us. Well, I mean, the biggest uh, telling piece of data in, in this poll showed that 85% of Canadians say that the system needs an overhaul. So that's a really high number. Yeah, I said 85%. Yeah. And then the other important piece of data was that 59%, so close to 60% of people support the private delivery of publicly funded health services, and 60% say they're in favor of private health care for people who can afford it. Now, these sound like some of the highest numbers we've ever seen on this topic. Yeah, you would be right about that. I mean, obviously, there's been a growing sentiment, a, a lot of talk about health care over these last three years with COVID-19. And the experts say that in all their time in doing this polling, that they have never seen such clear majority um, responses when it comes to this issue of public versus private health care. Okay, and what about age-wise? Was there any difference in terms of the demographics? I mean, definitely people who are older say they are definitely um, more inclined to want this. Typically, you know, if you're older, you might have more um, health care challenges or you might be using the system more. Um, so definitely there was some age-specific uh, data in there as well. Okay, so let's also talk about as well, um, you know, if people feel like if they went to the emergency room here, it seems like only 42% were confident that they would be seen in a timely manner. Like some of the numbers in here, Catherine, are really quite like shocking when you think about people seem quite discouraged, I guess, about the healthcare system. Yeah, they are very discouraged, and the numbers are shocking. And when we first got the data back, because this polling was done exclusively for Global News, we almost did a double-take ourselves. And then we went back to uh, the Ipsos team, and they're like, no, this is really what it is. And they said in their 30 years of doing this polling, they have not seen responses like this. And they attribute a lot of this to the COVID-19 pandemic. They say that this was a real turning point. It was a catalyst that really started to shift the opinions of people. And so now the question is going to be, what do healthcare providers do with this? And what is the system going to do? And as you mentioned, there's that meeting on Tuesday with the prime minister and the premiers. Okay. And what about doctors? What did they have to say about this? They're concerned, to say the least. We spoke with several people from right across the country. And whenever I brought up this idea and I told them the numbers, they did a double take themselves, to be honest. And they said, you know, they're concerned that if we go down this route, if we go down the path of private health care, they are worried for what this will mean for the system as a whole. They say that if we do this, the first thing to consider is that there are really only a finite number of resources. It's not like you introduce private health care and all of a sudden there are more doctors, more nurses, more lab techs. No, that's not the case. So if we do that, they worry that the whole system will feel the strain and really probably 
One of the more concerning parts is that the people who are from marginalized groups, from low socioeconomic backgrounds who would not be able to pay for it, they will definitely be hit the hardest. All right, Catherine, thank you so much for breaking it down for us. My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, Fisheries and Oceans Canada has come out with a report, and I got to tell you, not many people are happy about it. Let's talk about this and find out why that is. So joining us now is Bob Chamberlain, chair of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance. Bob, thanks for being back with us. Hey, good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. Well, first of all, tell me about this report. Well, this report uh, was completed back in August. So, of course, releasing it now in the time frame where the minister is supposed to be making a decision on Discovery Islands is highly suspect. And, of course, we've got quite a voice of uh, scientists and research uh, professors that are calling into question the validity of the process and outcome of this paper. Okay, and what does the paper say? Well, it says that there's, you know, it, it relieves the industry of any impacts to wild salmon from sea lice. And I think, you know, we've got 16 professors and research scientists that they themselves have uh, completed 1,500 peer-reviewed science papers and served on 30 editorial boards for scientific journals. So when they say this process and outcome of this DFO paper falls far short of standards credible for independent uh, peer review and publishable science, I believe them. And we have been speaking about the failure of the Canadian Scientific Advisory Secretariat for quite a long time now. And this is what DFO stands on to say that fish farms are not a minimal or you know, not a harm to wild salmon, which is incredibly false. Right. Now, that this is about the connection between sea lice on salmon farms and wild salmon. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And so was there a difference between the conclusion and, and you feel like what the report was actually saying? Well, the problem that I see is that they will, they've chosen to omit uh, different science papers that are existing. Because there are 30 such sea lice papers, and these were not integrated into this assessment at all. And so when I think about what does the word falsification mean, it includes changing or omitting data or results in such a way that the research is not accurately represented. A person might falsify data to make it fit within the desired end result of a study. And this was this paper that we're discussing was accomplished, the review was by DFO Aquaculture Management and Aquaculture Science, and they have a mandate to promote and expand this industry. So this certainly is not a peer review uh, in, the, in the purest sense that we require to safeguard wild salmon. Right, and you talked about how we've reached a, a critical time because of a decision that's about to be made. What is that about? Well, the minister has got two separate processes. Well, they're, they run parallel to each other. Uh, the Discovery Islands decisions for the fish farms in and around the Campbell River area. And the plan was to have that announced by January of 2023. So, of course, it's late now. And there's the broader transition planning effort that is underway until June. So what we have is, I'm, you know, the timing of this 
to have it come out and into the public eye just before uh, the minister was scheduled to make this announcement on Discovery Islands. To me, it just smells of really bad political effort from the DFO Aquaculture Management and Aquaculture Science. Are you nervous then about what this might mean for what they could say? Well, I wouldn't say nervous. I'm very keenly interested because in terms of like the CSAS, the, this now makes the 10th so-called peer review science paper. Um, I coordinated a meeting between two of the scientists that are involved in this letter with the deputy minister. And we were able to articulate very concisely the issues and the uh, complete lack of objectivity of the CSAS process. And we also have the federal government making great uh, words of commitment to reconciliation and implementing the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And I've spoken to people within the government, letting them know if they make the right decision here on fish farms to protect wild salmon, they will implement the vast majority of those reconciliation efforts and have broad reconciliation for 90% of the First Nations in British Columbia. So it's like a litmus test of uh, whether they really mean it or not. Right, Bob, I felt like, and I'm sure you feel like this too, but we spent so many years talking about fish farms and the health concerns. Has anything improved in that time, Bob, like technology-wise, like preventing this from happening? Are we not getting better at doing this? No, simply uh, that's the answer. Uh, They've come up with sea lice treatments, which are failing abysmally. Uh, They speak about semi-enclosed floating fish farms, which don't uh, filter out water, and they still let pathogen and disease escape. So what we have is a captured regulator that has been listening to the industry like it's the godsend for uh, all employment in British Columbia. And the DFO has simply lost sight of the uh, economic benefit and environmental benefit of healthy and abundant wild salmon stocks. Have we seen any kind of reduction in the number of fish farms? Well, there has been. I mean, with the provincial government, uh, the First Nation I'm from and a a couple of our neighbours implemented the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People and have a transition plan in the Broughton Archipelago. And, of course, Sheeshelt Nation uh, worked with the province to have farms removed there. But, you know, what we're facing here with this complete fallacy of of, uh, peer review from the Canadian Science Advisory Secretariat We need Prime Minister Trudeau to turn his attention to what is happening here. Uh, The DFO minister, as best I can tell, is is working very hard to have an objective process, but continually gets undermined by this aquaculture management division. And the state of wild salmon in British Columbia right now, we need the Prime Minister's intervention here. We need the Prime Minister to step up, take a look, and bring in the... uh, Public Service Commission to examine what is exactly happening here so Canadians can begin to hopefully rebuild some measure of trust in the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. So in the meantime, you wait. Well, in the meantime, we continue to do the work to expose the um, what we're seeing within the DFO. We're uh, working with First Nations across the province. I mean, we had a meeting with the DFO Minister Joyce Murray in November. We had First Nations from all all across British Columbia, speaking about the need for food security, which of course is a portion of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. We articulated very clearly the concerns with CSAS. So now the the minister, the deputy minister, and the senior staff all are aware of this. Mm -hmm. And so now we get to see if they actually, if they're listening to what's being told, and if they're willing to step up and show the leadership that wild salmon needs right now. 
Bob, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, the balloon. It seems like that's all anyone in the United States talked about for days. The suspected spy balloon was shot down on the weekend, and now the wait is on to find out more about what it was really doing. There's a lot of uproar about this, and yet historically, if we look back, this is not the first time major countries have dealt with this type of scenario. And for more on all of this, we're joined now by Michelle Juno Katsuya, who's a former chief of Asia Pacific at CSIS and the author of Nest of Spies. Michelle, thank you for being here. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Sami. Could you explain to us, like, has this happened before in history? Oh, yes, it did. And it does actually happen uh, uh, quite often, almost on a weekly basis, uh, north uh, of our border. Um, Very, very often we have uh, Chinese plane or or, uh, Russian planes that intentionally will go into our uh, aerial space in order to try to test our defense. And very, very often we have our warbirds that uh, take off and very shortly uh, intercept those planes and escort them back to their territory. So it's, it's not the first time. And, and this kind of incidents with weather balloon has happened as well in the past. They were smaller most of the time. And, they were, uh, and we were informed ahead of time. What is different this time is the size of the balloon and the fact that nobody informed neither the, RC, the, the um, uh, Americans or the Canadians at that period of time. The Chinese here had or should have had control because those kind of equipment as well are usually equipped with a device that will blow the balloon over an ocean in order to uh, avoid flying over the uh, populated area. So there was a lot of uh, mishaps coming from the Chinese, and this is what we're trying to understand now. Was it intentional? Because they wanted to create an embarrassment for President uh, Biden because, and the Canadian because of the delegation that went to Taiwan back in the fall. Or is it intentional because there is somebody in the Chinese command that wanted to create a rift between the Americans and the Chinese? Or is it pure incompetence and somebody tried to hide it, hoping it would sort of disappear, but somehow did not and created this uh, incident. But it was definitely uh, an incident from a diplomatic point of view. Yeah, exactly. Why a balloon, though, by the way? Well, we do conduct, uh, in several countries, we do conduct uh, uh, weather experiments and and, and, uh, uh, science with big balloons. So we send the balloons. So when we call it a spy balloon, that's why I say, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) Spy usually means secret. There was nothing secret about a balloon of that size that could be seen from the ground uh, flying very slowly over two two countries. So that's not exactly what spy spy business is about. You can use a satellite, you can use drone, you can use your your own uh, spy birds, but not a balloon. Right. And now we know it has been shot down and China claims that they are not happy about that and they are protesting this. Like what's really going on here, Michelle? Uh, China is just trying to save face because they really one way or the other lost face accidental, somebody trying to hide it, somebody forgot to inform the high command, whatever, they lost 
sort of face because a balloon of that nature should be equipped with the device I was talking about in order to destroy it over non-populated area like an ocean, uh, like it happens before. But this time, it sort of went through the cracks or it was intentional, like I said. So one way or the other, it is an embarrassment for the Chinese uh, uh, high command. Right. So even if it were an errant weather balloon, shouldn't they have informed then the United States that, oh, by the way, we lost this over here? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and uh, some people, I've heard also some people criticizing, saying, oh, Canada, we didn't do anything and stuff like that. Guys, learn your geography. The way the balloon went over Canada, it was over populated area all the time. It was safer to let it go and form our, uh, our counterpart, which, by the way, knew it before us because it went over Alaska before it came to us, and NORAD was on it anyway. So this sort of usual cultural practice of having Canada bashing done by ourselves. Uh, it's, it's like deja vu and please move on. Right. I was thinking too, going back historically to the cold war, uh, I was thinking of Gary powers and the, and the plane as well that went down in the Soviet union. This, it feels right. like sides do this. Yes. Yes. Uh, we do that. Uh, <laughs> every country does it uh, back and forth. Uh, we send those spikes uh, plane, like I said, or we use our satellites. And that's the reason why I'm saying a balloon was not the most sophisticated and most secretive ways of, of uh, uh, stealing information. No, it's, it's, it's really a question of either or. Either it was intentional or either it was an accident. But one way or the other, the Chinese were wrong not to inform fast enough their neighbors that something was going to fly over their uh, their situation their, their their country right. and by doing so they either uh, demonstrate uh, a lack of communication within their own chain of command or or simply somebody intentionally wanted to provoke a crisis so michelle what do you think that we should all keep in mind because you've seen the coverage of this right like it is in the united states that's all they are talking about now so what should we all keep in mind do you think well, that unfortunately, because of the uh, number of, of uh, aero devices that are, are flying around, there will be other incidents this way. The self-control and the self-restraint exercised by Canada and the U.S. was, I think, appropriate. Uh, they waited until the balloon passed the uh, populated area. They shut it down 11 miles away from uh, the coast in a place where they will be capable to retrieve and probably will be satisfied in finding out that uh, it was probably just a weather balloon. But there, therefore, uh, we've got to sort of be careful because these kind of incidents, if out of control, if some people are, which are a little bit too uh, trigger happy, wants to sort of uh, 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 start a conflict, it could degenerate very, very, very fast. Here at this point, China is just trying to save face, but let's put it this way, they're the one with the cream pie in their face today. All right, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much again for the opportunity. This is Mornings with Simi. Sales are down, inventory is down, mortgage rates are up. What does all of this spell for our housing market in 2023? Well, there's a new report out on that. And joining us now to talk about it is Brendan Ogmanson, who's the chief economist at the BC Real Estate Association. Good morning, Brendan. Morning, great to be here. 
Well, let's talk about this report for the forecast for 2023. It doesn't sound great, does it? At least for 2023, I think this year is going to still be fairly challenging just because a lot of what we're seeing in the market right now is about rates and rates are still really high. Okay, so what are you for? What do you see forecasting to happen here? So in 2023, we're expecting sales to be pretty slow, a lot like what we saw over the last six months or so. So a fairly slow rate of sales down a little bit over 2022, just because we're not going to have the, uh, the, the, the kind of spurt of activity we saw in the first quarter of 2022. So sales are going to be down. I think prices year over year are going to be down, but they'll probably be more or less flat from where they are now. It's just the peak from 2022 is so high that year over year will be down, even if you know sales just flatten out from or prices just flatten out from here. Uh, 2024, I think, is a different story. You know, conditioned on rates coming down, I think we're set up for a pretty strong recovery next year. Okay. Though, what is it? What about the fact that there's not a lot of inventory out there? There's not a lot of listings. Does that impact what's going on? A lot on the pricing side. So, in, in you know, one of the reasons why prices have just you know, they came down in the spring last year. Uh, but it's really flattened out since. And that's just because we don't have a lot of listings on the market. So sales are really, really slow, but so are, so are new listings. And, and the total inventory in the market is still very low, especially in Vancouver, where it's still, there's only about 7,000, 8,000 listings in, in Metro Vancouver as, as a whole. That's really, really low. Uh, and that means there's just not a lot of sellers out there. That means there's not a lot of downward pressure on prices. Is there an adjustment going on with those prices, do you think? We had a, a fairly significant adjustment in, in some markets around BC from about February of 2022 till, till the summer or so of, of last year. Uh, right now, like the market's really just trying to find its, its level. So most markets around BC, uh, prices are back to around summer of 2021 levels. And that seems to be the price at which buyers and sellers are kind of agreeing this is the right price for the market. So. Um, you know, we already had a pretty significant adjustment. The peak uh, prices in February were really, really, really high uh, in, say, in 2022. So we, we've come down in some markets 20% from that level. Uh, I don't think we're going to see much more of an adjustment from on prices uh, from, from there. Right, Brendan, but it does seem like it's all over the place, doesn't it? Like it, it, the market is still trying to find <clears throat> what is an acceptable price in certain neighborhoods. Yeah, all over the place describes a lot of what's going on in, in the economy right now. There's a lot of grasping for what is the direction. You know, we've, we've had a lot of kind of gloom in, about the, the outlook for the economy. But then we have these jobs reports, you know, at the end of, uh, end of the year for Canada that were, were you know, we said 100,000 jobs created. The United States just saw 500,000 jobs created in the first month of the year. So we have all this recession narrative but we're seeing data that's still really strong. So I think a lot of a lot of market participants, a lot of people in the economy are just grasping at where is this economy actually going? It's really hard to find any certainty. So I think that's why one of the reasons why we're seeing sellers really staying on the sidelines, buyers kind of waiting as well. I think that 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 uncertainty is really just keeping activity pretty quiet. All right. So is there like, you know, what we saw, I guess, during the pandemic, which was so interesting, was that houses that normally went for cheaper, like out in the suburbs, really went up in price. Are we seeing anything come back down more substantially in those areas? 
so a lot of what we saw in the back half of 2022, I think, was an unwinding of a lot of the trends we saw during the pandemic. So, you know, all of that relocation demand into more affordable markets where you can get a lot more space for, for a, lot, a lot lower prices. Then prices went up a lot in those markets and then rates went up. Uh, and people got called back to work. So that demand sort of in the suburbs or even, you know, in places like Chilliwack and further out of the Fraser Valley, uh, or even if you look at the island for, you know, markets further out in Victoria, those markets went up a lot. And now the demand uh, in those markets, is, it just has shifted pretty dramatically. So prices outside of major metro areas, you know, places like Chilliwack, Abbotsford, prices in those markets are down about 20% from where they peaked. They're still up about 40 or 50% from 2019. Uh, but they have come down considerably, I think, because we're just we're seeing an unwinding. You know, if you're you're maybe not going to relocate to Chilliwack if you need to be in the office three times a week, and you certainly weren't going to do it when gas prices were over two dollars a liter. So, are people waiting to see what happens then with interest rates? Do you think for 2023? I think that's a huge, huge part of it. Um, you know, we we have fortunately started to see five-year fixed mortgage rates come down a little bit. Uh, you can, you know, some some uh, uh, products, you can get a, a rate under 5%. Variable rates are going to be high all year until the Bank of Canada decides to to uh, take its, its foot off the brakes. Uh, that's probably not going to happen until 2024. So I, I think, though, just the fact that the Bank of Canada signaled that they're probably done raising rates does create a little bit more certainty for some for some potential buyers. But at these rates, and you know, given that you have to qualify at 200 basis points over your rate, that's just going to keep a lot of demand sidelines. It's one of the reasons why we think rates are going to come down this year. I think the Bank of Canada is probably going to cut rates in early 2024. We have record amounts of immigration. So that those factors are why we think the recovery in 2024 is going to be very strong. Okay. And so what about inventory? Do we see that? Usually people wait in the spring and more things go on the market. Do you think that's going to happen? I think we will see an uptick in inventory. It's just that it's coming from such a low level. So for, for example, a healthy amount of listings in, in the Vancouver market is around like 14 to 15,000 listings. Right now we're at like 8,000 listings, a little bit below that. So we need inventory to come up a lot to get back to a really healthy level. For that to happen, we need a lot of new listings activity. So the good way that new listings happen, uh, activity happens is that sales recover and a lot of you know, buyers are also sellers and we get an increase in new listings. The bad way for it to happen is sort of a negative scenario where um, we do have a more serious recession than most people think. People are losing jobs at the same time as they're maybe getting a reset into higher mortgage payments, and that creates a lot of a lot of extra new listings. That's sort of a, a, a worst case scenario. We're not seeing any of that in the data yet, but those those are the two ways we can get more listings, and we certainly need more listings. It'd be really good to get them just because overall activity in the market is is up. Right. Um, always more to watch with real estate, Brendan. Thank you. You're my pleasure. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Sales are down. Inventory is down. Mortgage rates are up. What does all of this spell for our housing market in 2023? Well, there's a new report out on that. And joining us now to talk about it is Brendan Ogmanson, who's the chief economist at the BC Real Estate Association. Good morning, Brendan. Morning. Great to be here. Well, let's talk about this report for the forecast for 2023. It doesn't sound great, does it? 
at least for 2023, I think this year is going to still be fairly challenging just because a lot of what we're seeing in the market right now is about rates and rates are still really high. Okay. So what are you for, what do you see forecasting to happen here? So in 2023, we're expecting sales to be pretty slow, a lot like what we saw over the last six months or so. So a fairly slow rate of sales down a little bit over 2022, just because we're not going to have the, uh, the, 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 kind of spurt of activity we saw in the first quarter of 2022. So sales are going to be down. Uh, I think prices year over year are going to be down, but they'll probably be more or less flat from where they are now. It's just the peak from 2022 is so high that year over year will be down, even if, you know, sales just flatten out from, or prices just flatten out from here. Uh, 2024, I think is a different story, you know, conditioned on rates coming down. I think we're set up for a pretty strong recovery next year. Okay. Though, what is it? What about the fact that there's not a lot of inventory out there? There's not a lot of listings. Does that impact what's going on? A lot on the pricing side. So, in, in you know, one of the reasons why prices have just you know, they came down in the spring last year, uh, but have really flattened out since, and that's just because we don't have a lot of listings on the market. So, sales are really, really slow. But so are, that, so are new listings, and, and the total inventory in the market is still very low, especially in Vancouver, where it's still there's only about 7,000, 8,000 listings in, in Metro Vancouver as, as a whole. That's really, really low. Uh, and that means there's just not a lot of sellers out there. That means there's not a lot of downward pressure on prices. Is there an adjustment going on with those prices, do you think? We had a, a fairly significant adjustment in, in some markets around BC from about February of 2022 till, till the summer or so of, of last year. Uh, right now, like the market's really just trying to find its, its level. So most markets around BC, uh, prices are back to around summer of 2021 levels. And that seems to be the price at which buyers and sellers are kind of agreeing this is the right price for the market. So. Um, you know, we already had a pretty significant adjustment. The peak uh, prices in February were really, really, really high uh, in, say, in 2022. So we've, we've come down in some markets 20% from that level. Uh, I don't think we're going to see much more of an adjustment from on prices uh, from, from there. Right, Brendan, but it does seem like it's all over the place, doesn't it? Like it, it, the market is still trying to find <clears throat> what is an acceptable price in certain neighborhoods. Yeah, all over the place describes a lot of what's going on in, in the economy right now. There's a lot of grasping for what is the direction. You know, we've, we've had a lot of kind of gloom in, about the, the outlook for the economy. But then we have these jobs reports, you know, at the end of, uh, end of the year for Canada that were, were you know, we said 100,000 jobs created. The United States just saw 500,000 jobs created in the first month of the year. So we have all this recession narrative but we're seeing data that's still really strong. So I think a lot of a lot of market participants, a lot of people in the economy are just grasping at where is this economy actually going? It's really hard to find any certainty. So I think that's why one of the reasons why we're seeing sellers really staying on the sidelines, buyers kind of waiting as well. I think that 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 uncertainty is really just keeping activity pretty quiet. All right. So is there like, you know, what we saw, I guess, during the pandemic, which was so interesting, was that houses that normally went for cheaper, like out in the suburbs, really went up in price. Are we seeing anything come back down more substantially in those areas? So a lot of what we saw in the back half of 2022, I think, was an unwinding of a lot of the trends we saw during the pandemic. So, you know, all of that relocation demand into more affordable markets where you can get a lot more space for, for a, lot, a lot lower prices. Then prices went up a lot in those markets and then rates went up. 
uh, and people got called back to work. So that demand sort of in the suburbs or even, you know, in places like Chilliwack and further out of the Fraser Valley, uh, or even if you look at the island for, you know, markets further out in Victoria, those markets went up a lot. And now the demand uh, in those markets, is, it just has shifted pretty dramatically. So prices outside of major metro areas, you know, places like Chilliwack, Abbotsford, Prices in those markets are down about 20% from where they peaked. They're still up about 40 or 50% from 2019, uh, but they have come down considerably, I think, because we're just, we're seeing an unwinding. You know, if you're, you're maybe not going to relocate to Chilliwack if you need to be in the office three times a week, and you certainly weren't going to do it when gas prices were over $2 a liter. So are people waiting to see what happens then with interest rates, do you think, for 2023? I think that's a huge, huge part of it. Um, you know, we, we have fortunately started to see five-year fixed mortgage rates come down a little bit. Uh, you know, some some uh, uh, products you can get a, a rate under five percent. Variable rates are going to be high all year until the Bank of Canada decides to to uh, take its its foot off the brakes. Uh, that's probably not going to happen until 2024. So I, I think though, just the fact that the Bank of Canada signaled that they're probably done raising rates does create a little bit more certainty for some for some potential buyers but at these rates and you know given that you have to qualify at 200 basis points over your rate that's just going to keep a lot of demand sidelines it's one of the reasons why we think rates are going to come down this year i think the bank of canada is probably going to cut rates in early 2024 we have record amounts of immigration so that those factors are why we think the recovery in 2024 is going to be very strong Okay. And so what about inventory? Do we see that? Usually people wait in the spring and more things go on the market. Do you think that's going to happen? I think we will see an uptick in inventory. It's just that it's coming from such a low level. So for for example, a healthy amount of listings in, in the Vancouver market is around like fourteen to 15,000 listings. Right now we're at like 8,000 listings, a little bit below that. So we need inventory to come up a lot to get back to a really healthy level. For that to happen, we need a lot of new listings activity. So the good way that new listings happen, uh, activity happens is that sales recover and a lot of you know, buyers are also sellers and we get an increase in new listings. The bad way for it to happen is sort of a negative scenario where um, we do have a more serious recession than most people think. People are losing jobs at the same time as they're maybe getting a reset into higher mortgage payments, and that creates a lot of a lot of extra new listings. That's sort of a, a, a worst case scenario. We're not seeing any of that in the data yet, but those those are the two ways we can get more listings, and we certainly need more listings. It'd be really good to get them just because overall activity in the market is is up. Right. Um, always more to watch with real estate, Brendan. Thank you. You're my pleasure. Thank you. This is mornings with Simi. A rescue worker is lowered along with people he's helped evacuate from a devastated building. One evacuated person stepping down to ground and embracing another. Hundreds are feared trapped under the rubble. The death toll is expected to rise as rescue workers continue searching mounds of wreckage in cities and towns across the area. Aerial footage shows the piles of debris with mangled steel bars showing inside some of the buildings that have remained standing. I'm Charles de Ledesma.
It is absolute devastation in parts of Turkey and Syria today, and we are just starting to learn just how serious the situation is. The death toll in those two countries has risen to at least 2,300 people following that devastating 7.8 magnitude earthquake that hit there about 12, a little more than 12, 15 hours ago. It is one of the strongest earthquakes to hit that region in more than 100 years. And so all across Turkey and in parts of Syria, we are seeing the same situation just pancaked buildings, things that have absolutely collapsed, like trying to get a hold of people there and even find out how to help is proving incredibly challenging this morning. So there will be more to come on that and we will keep you posted. No doubt there will be numerous Canadian agencies who want to pitch in and help. We will tell you how you can do that. Right now, though, we wanted to focus on the people and the stories from there including just trying to get a hold of loved ones that are in that area. And we know that story because of someone who works here with us. That's Leila Kadir, who's uh, from Syria and a producer here at 980 CKNW and has family in Syria. Leila, thank you for being here this morning. Thank you, Sami. Glad to be here. Let me ask, first of all, how is your family? Where are they? What do you know? Uh, well, I'm, I'm really concerned about my family. Yesterday, my aunt told me that her house was damaged, the, the walls were cracked, uh, and all the glass was broken. People went out to the streets, and all of them are just gathering in a Sahara-like area. It's called Al-Muhallaq, uh, where there are no trees or buildings. Um, she said the biggest earthquake happened yesterday, but it was followed by small ones. Uh, the buildings are just keeping collapsing one after another. Um, and according to her, to my aunt, her home might be one of these buildings at risk of collapse. Um, can you imagine, Simi, someone no. spent their life saving money to buy a property and lived in it for more than 30 years, and then they lose it with less than a minute. Um, the, the region, Yeah, the region is a com- completely devastated right now. Um, uh, you know, the north storm, uh, snowstorm, sorry, is continuing. More people are losing their shelters. Um, are, are you able yeah. to get a hold of them? So, like, what is contact like? Uh, so, uh, there's no internet. They are like they are experiencing internet outages as well as electricity and water. Uh, she called me around like 4 a.m. here. Um, Pacific time and she she told me that she does not know when she can return to her home um, yet so because like as I mentioned the walls were cracked and mm-hmm. the building might be collapsing in any minute. It sounds very chaotic is it is a, are a lot of people just kind of camping outside at this point? Yeah yeah you know to me this is a city that was experiencing war and people were already in shelters so right now they're just like trying to find another camp. And how common, Leila, are earthquakes there? Or has has the city not experienced something like this before? It is really surprising. Like I've lived in Syria for more than 30 years. I lived in Aleppo, which is, you know, a few minutes from Gaziantep in Turkey. Um, and uh, we've never experienced an earthquake before. I know like s- snowstorms are common, uh, but earthquake, no. So how much family do you have there, Layla? You talked about your aunt, but is there any other family in that area? 
Oh, my whole family are um, in Aleppo. I, I'm here just with my sisters, but I have my aunts, my uncles, my cousins. Um, all of them are in Aleppo right now. Oh, you must be so worried then. Is there any any yeah. way that you can get in touch with them or is your aunt able to find out how they are? Um, so I'm still trying to get any updates, uh, but I'm just like, they're fine, thankfully. I'm, I'm, I'm like... I, I, I don't want to be worried at them at the moment because they're just doing fine, but they don't know when they can return. You know, there are no words to describe the extent of the crisis in, in Aleppo during these hours. Um, oh, it sounds awful. Listen, Lila, yeah. keep us up to date and how we can help. And I know there's going to be more to come, but thank you for telling us about that this morning. Thank you, Samina. No worries.